Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss the exciting science behind HRV and how you can apply it to your own health and the work that you do. Just a note, this podcast does not replace medical advice, and if you're going to apply this to your own life or others, please consult with a medical provider. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Uh, we're going to continue to go with the Wayback Machine uh, back to uh, 2018. Uh, pick up where we left off with uh, Jerry and Kurt and uh, myself as the new learner uh, and new to heart rate variability. Uh, this is one of those other articles uh, and uh, podcasts where you can sort of see me getting it more and more and more. I love this discussion. In fact, to me, this is where heart rate variability really helped me show that, hey, a lot of people, uh, nobody really wakes up, uh, whether it's a kid in school, maybe somebody struggling uh, in a homeless shelter, uh, no one wakes up and wants to be a behavioral problem. And uh, how I start to connect heart rate variability to dysregulation and then leading to these disruptive behaviors. And so I really enjoyed uh, listening back to this one. It's kind of fun to see yourself progress. Uh, you know, I've been on heart rate variability calls all day. Uh, so it's, it's just so much fun uh, to, to listen back at these. I, ho I hope you enjoy it as well. Lots of amazing uh, stuff in here. Also uh, in the show notes at heart rate uh, or excuse me, optimalhrv.com. You can get the link to the article for this episode as well. So uh, thank you. Enjoy the show. <laughs> so the study was conducted over a period of eight days. And what they basically did is said, we're going to come in, you come into this, to the, to a lab, we're going to take your heart rate measurement. And they used a, a polar heart rate measure, um, which is pretty cool that now we can pull that from um, all of the measurement that this specific uh, model of, of, a, of a regular heart rate monitor, um, they can pull essentially the EKG data from it and, and calculate all these different measures from it with the right software. So we're getting, as this app I think is showing, we're getting better access to this technology to be able to use it. Um, so they take their heart rate measurement and then what they did is they used this measurement method of momentary sampling or experience sampling which is an important, I think, uh, shift away from retrospective measurements of mood, which are inherently inaccurate and have all kinds of problems from a measurement standpoint and talks about momentary measurement. And I think that was a really cool aspect of the, of the, the method used in this, in this study. And they gave them a Palm Pilot, which may tell us a little bit about how long ago that was. <laughs> it's not a smartphone that they gave them, they gave them a Palm Pilot. Maybe they were just doing it on the cheap. I don't know. They got some Palm Pilots donated. <laughs> <laughs> 2013, they started giving those away. I think. <laughs> right, yeah. right. What we spent hundreds of dollars on at one point is now trash. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they had the, the students then carry around these Palm Pilots, and they're periodically prompted to be to to record in the moment. What is your what is your mood? And some of them bark like a dog, apparently. <laughs> He's mad. <laughs> so then the, during, during the middle of it, they did another heart rate measurement. Come and have them come back into the lab. And then at the end of the study, they turn everything in and do one more heart rate measurement. So the, this all happened over the course of eight days. Um, right at the beginning of the study also, they asked them about 
each student, each individual subject in this study was asked about how do they typically deal with emotional experiences? And do they use a, a, a method that is commonly called reappraisal, which is a cognitive process um, that essentially puts new meaning to an experience? Or do they engage in what we call suppression, which is maybe continuing to experience the emotional experience, but suppressing the behavioral expression of that. And so they're, they're, those are two basic processes about how we tend to deal with, with emotional experiences. So that's, that, that's everything they put together. And kind of what the questions that they wanted to start asking were, what are the different types of emotion that we experience, namely positive emotion or positive affect and negative affect? Are they related to what method of emotional regulation that we use or what strategy we use? And that was one of the questions in this study, uh, which when you look at all of the data was a big fat no. They're not related to either one of those things. Uh, so that was an interesting one. I would have kind of predicted that they would have found something there, but they really found no association whatsoever. So then they wanted to look at heart rate variability and specifically they were using, kind of go, going back to the article we talked about last time about different measures of heart rate variability give you different um, measurement or a different indications of the functions of the two divisions of the ANS, right? So you can get high frequency measurement and then you can get low frequency measurement and high frequency tends to be indicative of parasympathetic activity or parasympathetic modulation and low frequency measurement tends to be uh, related to sympathetic activity. Both of them are balancing one another out and they used high frequency. So they were really measuring vagal tone, parasympathetically modulated um, experience of, of, the or the, of the autonomic nervous system. And what they found, a couple of things. One is they first looked at categorizing positive affect or positive emotion versus negative emotion. And it wasn't talked about in the study very much, but the way that they did that, I think was really important. And what they did is they used uh, a model called the circumflex model of affect, which is a way of categorizing emotions based on pleasantness versus unpleasantness and high energy versus low energy. And each, you, you can pl plot both of those on a, a vertical and a horizontal plane essentially, and it creates quadrants. And it's a way of really getting some structure around emotional language and how we describe emotional experiences. You can have high energy, pleasant affect, which we may say, I'm happy, I'm excited. Or you can have high energy, unpleasant affect, meaning I'm angry, I'm anxious, I'm frustrated. And you can have low energy, pleasant, calm, serene, satisfied. Or you can have low energy, unpleasant, sad, depressed, uh, those are some of the emotional words that we use, right? But it's a nice way of systematically starting to categorize those things and putting some structure to um, something that seemingly is unstructured as emotional experience. And so they used those and then basically correlated descriptions uh, among those four quadrants and categorized things as either positive affect or negative affect and looked at whether or not heart rate variability, specifically parasympathetic activity, was associated with either instability in positive affect, meaning a lot of variability in positive affect, or instability in negative affect. And basically they found that um, on the negative affect side, once they did a statistical procedure to control for 
the mean level of affect across all the participants really kind of flattening that the, the impact of that out that there was a slight relationship between uh, heart rate variability and negative affect and that relationship was a negative relationship so the the lower your heart rate variability the more negative affect negative affective instability those people tended to report and on the other side of that on the positive affective side and this is a real i think a really interesting one they found uh, pretty clearly that there was a positive relationship between heart rate variability and positive affective instability, meaning that the high, if you had higher heart rate variability, more parasympathetic activation, more vagal tone, you tended to have more stable positive affect. And so that was a really interesting one that I found as you think about kind of mapping on to individual experience, what it, is, what it is like to experience high levels of heart rate variability. And one of the experiences that this is telling us about is that tends to be correlated with stability and positive affect. And so that's basically what this study found. And one of the things that, that they talked about, and I wanted to get um, Jerry to kind of tell us a little bit more about this neural network connection to uh, what we get in our physiology, is they talk about the neural network involved in downregulating uh, the activity of our heart, cardiac activity, and that, that neural network is from our prefrontal cortex, our amygdala, and the hypothalamus really is connected directly to, through our vagus nerve to some of our physiology. So Jerry, if you don't mind, give us a little, a little kind of detail on that neural network. So um, great explanation, Kurt, of the article. So kind of just to back up a little bit about some of this is that when we think about this parasympathetic um, uh, impact regulation of, of the heart, parasympathetic in influence really is um, a really neat um, process that is related to <clears throat> response inhibition, the capacity to inhibit responses and to make decisions about how to respond. It's related to attention and an ability to focus. It's related to uh, fear and anger modulation, right? And it's related to our ability to, because we can stop and we can think and we can modulate, our ability to make adaptive responses to the environment. Right? And so when we think about that cluster and we look at what we know about our neurobiology, many of those structures are mediated by our prefrontal cortex, right? Their executive functions. And so what we're having in there is really that this uh, heart rate variability is allowing us to have top-down regulation of our limbic systems, right? So you get this uh, activation of the amygdala, which is related to the to the hypothalamus and to the HPA axis, and right? But we get top-down regulation of that that allows us to, in some ways, pause make some decision, modulate those, and then make an adaptive response, right? And so I think that 
the, the interesting pieces of this is we know trauma has the opposite effect of that, right? So that the ability to inhibit responses, the ability to regulate attention and, and concentration, the ability to modulate fear and anger, the kind of that fun. So it makes not only do, does a study kind of look at this negative correlation, this negative correlation between um, negative affect and um, hit heart rate variability, but it also suggests that trauma impacts these relationships, right? And so these, um, these kind of, our ability to regulate physiology, our ability to regulate emotions, our ability to regulate attention, our ability to regulate behavior, our ability to regulate our sense of self and, and our relation to others, is all being influenced by these measures that you're kind of looking at, which is this balance between sympathetic activation and parasympathetic control, right? The break on that kind of looking at it. So I, I think that this interrelationship between these, all these functions really helps us understand why trauma has such a wide range of symptomatology because these functions are interrelated, right? And I think the study really kind of looks at it from, a, in, from a, in a healthy population. But when you look at on top of that accumulated stress or exposure to some high intensity stress that disrupts these systems, you can see why the cluster of symptoms that are related to trauma and especially to developmental trauma um, really interferes with so many of these uh, ability capacities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the words you said there is so key is capacity, and I think about that a lot as a as a train you know being trained as a behavior analyst right we're arranging environment so that if an individual is put in that environment and they respond the way that we've designed it as you know planfully that that will result in a positive outcome and sometimes we find that even in spite of our best plans that doesn't happen and so understanding the capacity to then respond to environmental input is tied to heart rate variability gives us an idea about maybe it's not that my environmental design was off you know, like based on what we know, but maybe I overlay this on top of environmental design and maybe a reinforcement contingency is not effective because there's no capacity there to respond to it. That, that's right? really, and I think that's, that's a really good point, right? And it, and it also tells us that we sometimes intervene at a cognitive level in terms of words and language and that really what's dysregulated is in the body. Right. Right. And, and some of the kind of research is beginning to help us make sense of why things like um, movement, music, uh, drama, all these kinds of alternative interventions help regulate this physiology that makes more traditional kinds of interventions 
more effective. Right. Right. To kind of looking at that as opposed to I'm going to, I'm going to get this person to have insight and somehow that's going to change their bodies. We, right. We, right. we know that that hasn't, but now we have some measures to help us understand why some people it is effective, right? It, it might be. A, and for other populations that are struggling with this physiological dysregulation, talking to them really, or just kind of setting up environments is important, but not sufficient to change some of the things we're kind of looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, it reminds me of a question that you asked in our last episode about a teacher. Like, what do you tell a teacher on how they could change their classroom, right? And one of the things that we know about education in, in the United States right now is that positive behavior and interventions and supports is like in every classroom, or, or it's supposed to be mandated to be, right? And so it's just, it's a ubiquitous kind of intervention. And one of the, this capacity questions is one of the kind of explanations for why it might not work for a lot of kids at that time. Or how, and, and can actually give us some information about how to adjust it. And so if you go into the kind of the discussion section of this article, one of the things that they said for future directions is what if you did an intervention that actually changed somebody's heart rate variability that moved it, that moved it up, then seeing if that actually changed their positive affective instability or their negative affective instability, that would be a manipulation that would be very interesting. Yeah. I think we could say that, if, if you did that, you're never going to hurt anyone. Yeah. So why not just do it, right? Let's just, let's just go for it. So as you think about designing a positive behavior intervention and support system in a classroom, you're using a motivational intervention that's very powerful. And it may be misapplied to the wrong level of functioning, right? So if it's applied to things that require the ability to pause, check in with your internal state, and then make a decision about what you do next and applying that so that that decision gets made in a direction that's we'll say adaptive right or better leads to better academic functioning great that's a great intervention for somebody who has that capacity mm -hmm. but if they don't then we need to shift what we're using that motivational intervention to produce and it may be activities related to changing heart rate variability right. bringing down so, so so what if taking what you're saying, what if a teacher would be using this Welltory app on a child and in some ways reframe the behavior as misbehavior to physiological dysregulation? And how do I now engage with that student to develop strategies to help them, right? It's like, so as we get this technology more useful it can and and better train uh educators about this issue of the gap between i can i could be the best teacher and i could be providing the same curriculum to all the students but this student because of what their internal state is not able to make use of that if i could somehow have some way to communicate, which is what we use heart rate monitors to kind of do, right? Is to begin to help the teacher engage in a collaborative relationship with those students and with the families to understand that we could find strategies as opposed to giving you a bad grade, I begin to intervene in a different way, right? So 
it really is a very different approach to this process of education. And, and, and you know, the, the developmentally, how do we get a, a high heart rate variability? What are the experiences that we need to provide children along the way to actually increase their vagal tone, right? That, that's the questions that we'll kind of maybe talk a little bit about mm -hmm. is that we know that some of our therapeutic interventions don't really address these issues. Well, right? well and, and I, I think, you know, b both of you, I, I think it's interesting because there's some kind of these, you know, alternative folks in the behavioral management that I've been reading that, that really talk about, you know, for, for, you know, if you take just the typical classroom, which is, I know there's no such thing as a typical classroom, that the kids that will succeed under one behavioral management program will basically succeed under any or no behavioral program. And yet in many ways, <laughs> we have these programs that succeed well for those kids and yet we've got this other group, which I think this conversation really speaks well to, who, who, are, who have a different biology operating, a different uh, heart rate variability uh, going on. And, you know, these, these interventions, and I've, you know, implemented these interventions in settings like child welfare and juvenile justice and housing where probably nobody has great variability per se. These cognitive sort of, oh, if I do this, I will lose this reward or get this consequence. I will lose a point, I will lose my level. Um, and I think it just really shows that, you know, again, we, we kind of create these systems for the kids that are succeeding in these systems and yet, for the kids that really need help behaviorally, they they often really are the ones that, that are falling behind. And, and I think this is a really good point. If we see that they're, they're processing environmental stimulus and their internal biology is operating differently, that boy, if we could create interventions for those kids, knowing that, and I think that there's a challenge to that. I don't think that that's, oh, we'll, we'll give that to you in a three-step process at this podcast. But if we can create things and find ways that work for those kids, we can probably assume that the kids with high heart rate variability will also succeed in those programs as well. And it makes me go back and kind of smile as uh, I brought this up uh, several months ago now in a book that uh, some of the ways, even though we think about mindfulness and all these kind of kind of higher level approaches to creating parasympathetic strength. Some of them are like gargling and singing loud. So, so not all of them have to be even touching anything that might re-trigger somebody. The gag reflex was the third one that I don't suggest anybody does on a regular basis for a lot of reasons, but it's like maybe just singing at the top of our lungs is one of the more effective ways to get a class to be regulated. So I, I think this just opens so many fascinating challenges to, to our traditional approaches to behavioral management, but also I think to some of these at-risk populations uh, or these dysregulated populations who we expect to, re to act and respond well to our high variability uh, interventions too. So this just opens like a million doors. I think those are really good points, Matt. And, and the, 
the part I want to come back to the article was that this was uh, quote unquote a healthy population, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it from that way, it's not only understanding heart rate variability of students, but how about the heart rate variability of the teachers? Absolutely. To be able to tolerate and modulate their response to these disruptions in classes, right? And so when you have these abilities, measures, availability, whether it be teachers' heart rates or teachers' heart rate variability, is to be able to say is, I need to be able to regulate my own system to be able to respond in that, right? And what I, how I define that is younger, less mature nervous systems depend on the presence of a more mature, better regulated nervous system to move to maximum complexity and, and, and do it. So that we now have the ability to go in and in some ways begin to provide some feedback to people on their physiological states, right. which is really an important kind of, that in itself is, is changing, right? So you getting, it validated you to say, I'm tired and I need some rest, right? As opposed to, oh, I'm just feeling depressed today. Or, no, you're physiologically tired right now, yeah. right? So if I'm in that spot and I'm getting that reading and I'm with my class, instead of kind of blaming them or doing it, I begin to be able to say, as I know, I need resources to kind of look at. So I, I think as we kind of get a better understanding of these measures, it really begins to help us move towards how do we begin to think about interventions using these this kind of information? To, to, that, to that point, man, I want to go back to something you said about about behavior management. And it's 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 one of the most common things that I hear people talk about when they say, what is behavior management? Or what is a behavioral intervention? Right? And that is the description of, if you do this, then you lose this. Yeah. Right, that that's the conceptualization of a behavioral intervention. Or get this, I think, lose or get, yeah. Good. So let go with the, I find people designing programs with the loss all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that it, they, they can be thought of at times as two sides of the same coin, but I would argue that they are not. That they are fundamentally different interventions. The loss of something or the gain of something are fundamentally different experiences. And they, requ they re actually require different levels of functioning in order to be effective. That, that, this is my review. You, you could... You could so let's take this article right where we think about capacity mm -hmm. and if you take your the, the way you described a behavioral intervention which is the most common way to do it if you do this then you know you you get this or you lose this so, right. so one way that one mistake that gets made often mm -hmm. is that that is programmed in as too much of a delay between when this behavior happens and when the reward happens, right? Tolerating a delay requires high levels of heart rate variability, it requires high levels of parasympathetic activation. And we're saying that if you have low heart rate variability, which is what exposure to trauma does, your ability to tolerate delays is very, very low. 
So that gives you some information about how to think about designing interventions that could be effective. Now you've got to have very, very low delay. We've known that in the behavioral world since 1938, right? That's one of the key variables that, that reduces the impact of environmental experience on behavior is delay between each one. Number one. Right, so then you talk about this other side of it, which is if I, if I do this, then I lose this. That in and of itself requires inhibition. Right, that's, that's what that intervention depends on, the ability of the capacity for inhibition to be effective. And what we're seeing from this article is that inhibition is compromised. You have less capacity to inhibit if you have low heart rate variability. So now we think about, that gives us some more information about how we design interventions. We need to have interventions that are not dependent on inhibitory capacity in order to be effective. Does that make sense? All right, so one of the things that, that you don't need for it to inhibit is responding to positive, repetitive, rewarding experiences. They, you, you can respond to those you actually need less inhibition to respond to those than you do for if you do this, then you lose. Mm. Right? So you can actually respond to an intervention with low delays, no loss component, no, in no dependency on inhibition in order for it to be effective. And you can still put in very rewarding experiences, even if, they're, even if there's still a contingency in there. Now that's kind of the third point is that a, a quote unquote behavioral intervention often depends on a contingency between a behavior and the, re, the rewarding experience that goes after it. And in, in a lot of, a lot of, it often does, but it doesn't have to, right? There are a whole category of interventions that we call um, antecedent based interventions or non-contingent interventions that are super effective and we should use them more. And they, they are used not as often as they should. And so as we think about what we do and, 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 and about contingencies, there is often kind of a, uh, there gets to be a little bit of a rub, I think, about the use of contingencies. And this is one of my arguments for why. Can you, can you define a contingency yeah, for our listeners? Right, a contingent relationship is one that is dependent on one another. Right, so if, if I, um, oh, I want to use, um, and that's when one behavior causes an environmental reaction. Right? So I can't, um, if I want to eat something, I have to go get it or I have to cook it. And there's, a, there's a relationship there. I don't get food unless I go do something. And that, that they're tied to one another in a contingent basis. There's also the concept of relationship in space and time. That it, they can be non-causal and you can still have an environmental event have an impact on behavior. Right, there can there can just be connection in time and space, and so I, I I argue that we need a really good understanding of behavioral management, and I think this is a real contribution that behavior analysis can make to the field of trauma. In that you cannot avoid relationships be, between behavior and relationship. It's like trying to say you you're not going to breathe air. They're everywhere. There's no way to avoid them. You cannot emit behavior without it having some impact on the environment, intentional or unintentional. It's just existent all the time. So having the, the, the knowledge about how those things will impact behavior is really important. So, so I, I wanna kind of um, 
how I'm kind of understanding this and kind of throw it out and see. In, in some ways, you have some type of demand on the individual. In the, and in this time, we're talking about a, a class as a student. There's a capacity that goes on internally to that stimulation, processing that information, um, being able to decide on a kind of response, inhibit responses, activate responses, focus my attention, yeah, and then kind of engage in those behaviors, right? And in our discussion, we're talking about a disruption of the capacities. Most of the interventions have been about managing the behavior. Well, the behavior isn't the problem. The, behavior, the problem was the lack of um, either access or development of these capacities. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about providing a, a, a exposure to, to positive experiences to do it, you're doing it with an intention of building in those capacities, not just managing these behaviors. Correct. Right? And I think that's a shift in mental states that this article and what we've been talking about is kind of helping us is that most programs are designed to manage behavior, but behavior is the end result of somebody being exposed to something and somebody having the capacities to be able to process it in an integrated way and use kind of higher level um, abilities to be able to decide on how to respond to it. And I think if those abilities are interfered with or have not adequately developed, we can manage behavior all day long. And those children that you say have the ability to respond to any is because they have those capacities. Right. Right. right? right. And so I think we're all saying in some ways the same thing from different but I want it to be real simple is that if your program is focused on just managing behaviors without an understanding that these abilities both occur developmentally, they occur within the context of relational interactions, and they, they, they occur in, in, in a state-dependent way. So that just because I have heart rate variability today, if I'm exposed to an overwhelming experience that doesn't allow me to do it or is associated with some past trauma, I can't access those things, right? And so this, this understanding of behavior, but understanding of this, these capacities, understanding how it's how they're how we acquire them developmentally and within the context of relationships and that they're state dependent has to be integrated into our interventions and our understanding of why some interventions are effective for some people but not for others as opposed to blaming the client almost for not being responded you're resistant you're doing it right. but it may be that this is not addressing what is interfering with you being in some ways able to respond in a way that's, uh, if we want to say adaptive or expected, or however you want to define it, 
but we need to kind of look at that those ability to kind of engage in what we're asking for. Does that make some sense? Yeah. So, so I mean, could I could I sum that up? Um, Maybe. <laughs> I, you know, because about what I what I've been thinking, I I think we can take this way beyond the classroom as well. If you're thinking about a, a homeless shelter situation with all adults in it, I think it's just as as relative for that. But really, behaviors that get people in trouble potentially are as much about inter lack of internal capacity or their internal state at the time, and or maybe lacking the skills to really succeed under that structure. Right, so I, I would, that's exactly right. But I wanna add is, it also interferes with your ability to, to effectively use the, the resource that's available to support them. Mm -hmm. So you could be as supportive as you can possibly be, but if this person's dysregulated internally, they can't make use of it. Or if they have a history of relationships not being supported to kind of look at that. So if we just think that our intervention is to add more people around somebody, <laughs> right? It's like, let's just add one more person here and that person, right? That's not gonna be effective if we don't really understand that this is a physiological dysregulation that, um, which has happened sometimes when we're in treatment programs and the kids are dysregulated, we think, oh, just add more people, we're all good. Now we just have more people dysregulated, yeah. right? Because <laughs> to kind of look at that. So I, I think that these are really important concepts that as people kind of leave and go away is to, to kind of begin to think about how much have I been focusing on just behavior, right? How much have I been focusing just on triggers? And how much have I really been focused when we really have to have an understanding of all this stream of, of, of the process, not just yeah. one component right. of it. And on a moment-to-moment -moment decision making. Exactly. Right. right. It, it gets pretty complicated. And, and I think, you know, especially working with uh, kids on the autism spectrum, especially uh, some kids that were fairly low functioning, um, you know, I think, one of the things is, you know, I, I have, the, I had this statement is I'm an occupational therapy tech as, as a mental health therapist, because, you know, you put somebody in a bouncy chair, you have somebody brush. I, I had one kid that it sounds like the worst thing to do to a kid in the classroom, but we turned his desk around, he faced the wall and he put head, uh, uh, noise canceling headphones on and his behaviors just went away. I mean, they went away. And it's like the last thing you'd want to walk into a classroom, see a bunch of kids facing the wall with noise, noise canceling headphones on. But for this kid, it was made all, all the difference. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, I don't know, think a lot of us have the resources per se necessarily in all settings, uh, even education to, to fully do that uh, with, with too many kids. But I think it's just like when you think about how, what does this kid need to create a internal environment that allows for heart, re heart rate variability, you know, that, that answer can look a lot of different ways and is probably unique to that one individual. And as Jerry said, on that day sometimes, in that moment sometimes. Um, and I think it's fascinating. Um, that I couldn't do necessarily, I mean, I could do some mental health things, but I'd much rather go sit in a bouncy chair.
because again, talk therapy, um, especially for that population, did didn't ha had limited impact. Um, and and then I got in the bouncy chair and felt really good. <laughs> I'm sitting on a yoga ball right now, so yeah, I've taken those lessons beyond. So yeah, but it but it also you know when you understand some of this, right? So. Why was it that when I was working with uh, kids who could not, say, regulate themselves in the classroom, why was it that when I went to the basketball court and shot baskets with them and moved and did something, that they began to spontaneously engage with me, right? Before, we might be saying, well, this kid's resistant and you're avoiding dealing, right? is that we now know is that intervention is providing pattern repetitive proprioceptive and vestibular stimulation that's directly related to regulating my physiology and when my physiology is regulated i now can socially engage right to kind of looking at that and so some of these um some of these this research is validating some things that people really knew along the way already, but they didn't have some understanding of why it was working the way it was. Mm -hmm. Some of it's going to be new, but it isn't all of a sudden that we talk about this and you go, okay, I got to create this whole other program. There's lots of things that teachers or people in, in, in shelters or people um, who are working in community programs are already doing that they can say is no wonder that was working and why I may need to do it with more intention right. as right. opposed to just kind of randomly kind of looking at some of those. Yeah. I mean, that increase in intentionality, intentionality is one of the key things that you can pull out of uh, increased knowledge. It may, it may get this kind of, as you said, the validation of, oh, that's why that worked. And that's why it worked then. Right? Or, or here's the conditions that I should do it under, again, is really helpful. Right, right. So Kurt, something you said, I, I do want to kind of follow up on this because one of the things I often hear, you know, and, and is a, the concept of attention-seeking behavior, especially when we talk about children. And, and you're talking about relational interaction, positive relational interaction being, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but a part of their reward system. So how does that play into, I don't know if you use the word attention-seeking behavior anymore, but, but I wonder how, because I, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, don't pay attention to that kid. He's trying to get your, how's that inform your thinking? Uh, because uh, that was something I heard thrown around a lot. Right. Well, there can certainly be categories of attention-seeking behavior, right? And that's really a statement about the function of behavior. Yeah. That's, that's what that statement is about. Um, and there are a couple of important questions about it. And one, I think the first one is understanding from a developmental perspective and from a, a physiological, you know, neurobiological perspective, if we can overlay some of this knowledge on top of what we know now, one of the questions we can start to be able to ask is, why is that, why is attention established as such a powerful motivator that it would motivate a lot of problematic behavior, right? A lot of attention-seeking behavior is really high effort, really a lot of problematic behavior that takes a lot of energy and attention and effort to engage in, which gives you some clues about the power 
or the, the, the reinforcing power essentially of attention, one of the questions to think about is why is it so powerful? And as we get an understanding of how attachment can be related to establishing attention as such a powerful reinforcer or a very powerful punisher and either way, right. And, and the ideas of, as Jerry was talking earlier about what, what are the experiences that we need as children, as developing children to establish greater heart rate variability or greater parasympathetic input onto our sympathetic division of the, of the ANS is the attuned interactions of a caregiver that actually functions as our underdeveloped parasympathetic nervous system, it actually enhances our ability to do that. And if that doesn't get developed, then sympathetic activation often drives from a motivating perspective, right? In the behavioral language, we call these motivating operations. These are establishing operations. So if you're trained as a behavior analyst, listening to me talk about this, think establishing operation, motivating operation, like that's the word to use, that establishes the uh, attuned interaction of a caregiver as a very, very powerful motivator. So thinking about that, when we go down the road of saying, we need to not supply that contingent upon this response or it's gonna make it worse, actually not supplying it is gonna make it more worse than if you just supplied it. Yeah, that's why I was wondering because it, it may, that behavior might become, they, they're calling out because they need that. Absolutely. And it, it doesn't mean that you just have to kind of, again, like throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. You can start to be intentional about how you arrange those interactions. A great story out there, and you know, I've told it many times, is about one of the things that children often do when they get driven in their in this state where they've got high levels of sympathetic activation, um, high levels of anxiety often, they tend to seek out a lot of interaction with caregivers. And they tend to not do it in very kind ways, right? in ways that we want to attend to them, right? So we'll find that they ask for things that they can't have a lot. They may do what we call causing crisis, right? All kinds of kind of collections of really effortful responses that are really become something we need to manage. And if we flip our hypothesis about why it is that they do that, the function of that, to include also a regulatory function, then we can start to do things like, it's not about the content of what they're asking for, it's about being next to you. So it, you don't gotta worry about, yeah, you can have that or no, you can't have that. It's not even a decision you have to make. And what we've taught people to do is say, you know what, I can't give you that right now. Stay next to me, don't go anywhere. And now you're using still a, that's a, a that would be a very behavioral intervention um, to actually start to, to downregulate somebody's nervous system. And then it's an empirical question, right? If your hypothesis is right, then you would see a change in, in that response contingent on, on you doing your intervention. And if you don't, then maybe you need a different hypothesis, but at least you went and found out and, and that's a good process to go through. Yeah. You, you know, when you think about it, Matt, the, the same behavior, right? If you saw attention-seeking behavior from a one-year-old, a two-year-old, you would be going, th that makes total sense, right? To kind of look at that. And your intervention would be different than if you saw the same behavior from an adolescent, mm -hmm. right? Or an adult, to kind of look at that. But what we know is 
when you lack certain experiences along the way, on an emotional level, just because you've aged in chronological age, you have not necessarily developed certain capacities if you've missed out on experiences. And especially if the way you have traditionally tried to meet those needs is what, what did you call them? Crisis, kind of, what did you call them? But <laughs> operations. But if they elicit negative responses from the people you're trying to get attention from, right? So now you have not only what you didn't have as a child, but your style of managing actually recreates the lack of getting those needs met yeah. along the way. So now you have an adolescent who has years of not getting their needs met and their internal dialogue is about them is nobody cares mm -hmm. or I can't do this. I would not. Right. And so they keep engaging in those behaviors. So I think what occurs is when you reframe something, it really is to reframe it for the individuals responding for that person so that they have an opportunity then to in some ways begin to have some experience of being engaged in a relationship that allows them to kind of benefit from the experience at a developmentally appropriate level, not just trying to expect them chronologically to kind of do it. Right. Right? right. So I, I think we talked about in the last episode about how we uh, assume intention that because you're an adolescent, your attachments, your attention-seeking behavior is something you can manage and control and know how to kind of do it, right? But it, it really is, this is, this science is really telling us a little bit about that this is the way I'm trying to, in some ways, regulate my internal state. Right? Which, which I think in my final question, absolutely. My, so my, 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 I'm kind of coming to this conclusion, but I'm not sure if I should is you know if we have low heart rate variability how much cognitive control are we exerting in other words how much shall i say it free will or volition are we bringing to our our situation are we bringing any because or are we at the you know kind of expense of our lack of variability there right your, your ability is compromised under those yeah right it is less than it would be with more vaguely mediated um inhibitory control and today we talked about vagal tone is a physiological that's not only internally but it it's it starts out to be interpersonal right yeah. and so really that's why the power of relationships and having somebody in your life that can, can, can both support what you have, but also provide some scaffolding when you're under really is a very important component of building in. You know, there's research, good research now that yoga creates increased heart, way more so than medication. Medication regulates your nervous system, but it doesn't build heart rate variability, yeah. right? So you can actually look better, but not be better, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Which is, 
oftentimes you put people in program where there's lots of rules around and lots of structure and lots of do, but nothing's changed internally. Well, I I have a million. I mean, we could keep going for a while, I'm sure, but yeah, <laughs> we, I want to stop save it for the next for ten years because we <laughs> we need to stop. No more research. We just have to look at this one just article. This one <laughs> ten years across fields to figure this out. <laughs> well, let this me end with this, Matt. Let me end with this 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 kind yes. of thing, right. And this is my hope for our use of physiological measures. Uh, within a clinical population, right? And, and we could extend it to non-clinical if we want to, right? But part of what we talked about is that there is a need for both kind of experiences that we've touched on. One, which is regulatory experiences that are essentially in the behavioral world, we would call them non-contingent interventions. You need them frequently, you need them repetitively, and you need them regardless of what you're doing at any given point in time. And there's also a component that needs to happen that is contingent. Right? We learn to self-regulate by at times not getting what we wanted and being able to tolerate that or being able, or, or having the experience of earning something that required effort. Right? Those are important experiences. And one of my hopes is that we get better at knowing when to do each one of them. And I think heart rate variability might be a, dire a step in that direction. That okay. There are times when we have high heart rate variability when we have the capacity to respond relationally and engage socially and use our cortex to inhibit responses and learn different, have different experiences and learn different things. And there are other times when our state has changed and we have low heart rate variability and we have less capacity to inhibit responses, less capacity to socially engage. And in those situations, we need different experiences in order to regulate our internal states. And my hope is that we get better at being intentional about when we do those experiences and when they're actually likely to work. Great ending, man. Great summary. Yeah. What Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you're interested in more information about HRV, please visit us at OptimalHRV.com. Also, if you visit OptimalHRV.com, you'll be able to sign up for our email list and download our free ebook, Healing with HRV. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode.